Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Today on the podcast, our guest is Nancy Eisenberg, the author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America, a look at the social and pop cultural history of poor whites in the U.S. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hey, this is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. Today, my guest is Nancy Eisenberg. She's the author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America, which is an examination of the white underclass in pop culture and social history. Nancy, thanks for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Well, thank you for doing the interview. Okay, um, here's my first question. It seems one of the main points of this book is that America has a class system that American history books often leave out. Why is that important, and are things changing? Well, I think part of it is that Americans are attracted to a myth, a myth that we're an exceptional society, a myth of the American dream, a myth that we broke from England at the time of the Revolution. And with that, we assume that we broke free of their class system. But the opposite is true. We simply adopted and adapted the English notions for how they dismissed the poor or how they created a class hierarchy. And in your book, you kind of argue that the first people to come to America from Europe actually came here as kind of a system of getting rid of the trash of Europe (laughs) and seeing America as a sort of rubbish heap to get rid of people who are idle and not really working out in the old world. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that I highlight in in part of the mythmaking. We think that Americans, you know, we think that the first colonists were all Puritans or pilgrims and they came for religious freedom, but in fact they came for economic reasons. But they didn't come, of all of them, of their own volition. Uh, the British uh, notions of colonization were cu- quite clear. What they wanted to do was eliminate the idle poor. And therefore, these were people who they considered the dregs of society. Uh, and the group that they hated the most were vagrants, the mobile poor. Um, so this is one of the tough things that I think that we forget, is that America, as first imagined by the British, was called a wasteland, which meant it had no value. Um, it was, you know, land that hadn't been turned into fallow, land that hadn't been turned into fields that was productive. So their solution was they're going to dump not, they were going to dump not only the idle poor, but who they referred to as waste people. So this, this is one of the darker sides of early colonization. And in fact, we repeat this. When we open the West, we talk about a safety valve uh, in the late 18th, early 19th century, but in fact it's the same basic idea, is that you have to get rid of the poor, so you have to dump them somewhere else. But you also have an interesting section where you talk about some of the ideas that Ben Franklin had from watching ants and pigeons, (laughs) and how he thought that maybe the space that America had would actually allow people to grow the middle class and to find things for people to do. Explain some of his views on 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 uh, on this and how that really affected the sort of the American experiment. Yeah, Franklin is really important because he's one of the early proponents of demography, and this is another thing we forget is that the English imagined 
that what determined the importance and even a wealth of a nation was its people and how you manage the number of people that you had. So yes, uh, Franklin did experiments, and he believed that the frontier could be a lure to families, like ants to a honeypot. But he also did experiments with pigeons, and he in their pigeon boxes, and he realized that overcrowding meant the weak would have to move on. And that's why Franklin's argument constituted an early form of survival of the fittest. He really believed that you had to, you know, attract the the poor attract people to move into the unoccupied territories and he basically was saying that those who bred large families and toiled long would be rewarded if they didn't they would either have to move on or they would have to die off so it's it's kind of a very dark feeling a very dark attitude he really didn't like the poor um, he had negative things to say about the poor in Pennsylvania. And he also referred to people in the backcountry, people on the frontier, as rubbish. But he also imagined at the same time, and this is where the myth kicks in, he imagined that if we could pull more people into the frontier, he argued what would be a created would be a happy mediocrity. And this is where we get the myth that somehow classes will disappear because everyone's going to fall into this category of the happy mediocrity, which today we would refer to as the middle class. But what that implies is the people don't make it are going to have to die off or disappear. There's also a fascinating section of your book, White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America, in which you sort of re-examine the Civil War with a new frame. Of course, the Civil War was about slavery, but you also talk about the fact that there was this class warfare going on as well. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to argue that we have to look at how the Confederacy openly defended a racial and class hierarchy. And one of the key architects, key promoters of the Confederate ideology was Senator James Hammond of South Carolina. He was a leading pro-slavery intellectual, and he coined the term mudsill. Uh, to describe the fixed character of class status. Essentially, and, and this also plays off Lincoln's two house divided, because a mudsill is, is basically the support that you put into the mud to hold, a, hold up a, a home or hold up a structure. So what he was saying is that every society had to have its mudsills. It had to have people on the base. These were the people who performed the drudgery of life. And he went on to argue that you have to have the mudsills who are going to be exploited in order to have civilization uh, grow and flourish on, based on the labor of the mudsills. Now, he said the South was superior because they only put slaves in the position of mudsills. And he turned around and attacked the North and said that you are putting people of your own race, brothers of one blood, into the position of mudsills. But what's really dark about Hammond's theory, not only is he openly endorsing slavery and saying it's superior to free labor, but he's also arguing that essentially that if the North continued with its practice, that essentially what was going to happen is that the poor northern white mud cells were going to orchestrate a class revolution and destroy the Union. So this is a part of the theory we don't address, that Confederates were talking about social revolution, class revolution in the North. They also were deeply afraid that their own poor whites might be tempted by the democratic promises of the North to join the revolt. 
But they also, their whole theory of slavery reinforces this idea of class hierarchy. Uh, and they say over and over again, prominent spokesmen, spokesmen say that it is the inherited elite, the best of the best, who should rule the South. So they didn't embrace all whites. Um, and then when they try to convince whites to join the Confederacy, uh, they do use racial fears and racial taunts, basically saying if you don't sort of get in the trenches and support the Confederacy, that you're going to drop as low as the slaves. But in fact, they gave nothing to poor whites in the South, and their numbers were increasing to a really high percentage of the population. So this is what we have to realize, that the South was defending both a racial and class hierarchy, and those two things were intimately intertwined in the thinking of prominent Confederates. One thing I found interesting in your book, White Trash, is there's an ongoing theme of poor whites being manipulated for political purposes by aristocratic um, whites. Uh, and one example of that is you, know, you go into detail about the whole, that famous picture of from the Little Rock Nine, a uh, 15-year-old uh, uh-huh. Elizabeth Eckford trying to enter Central High School in Little Rock by being blocked by the Arkansas National Guard and being blocked by this mob of chanting whites, including Hazel Bryan, who's 15 years old, and okay. you see her yelling at this this young black girl who's just trying to get an education and helping to desegregate a school in 1957. But there's a story of class resentment there, too, that the picture doesn't fully capture. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, what's so interesting about Little Rock is that what we said, there were three high schools. There was one for elite whites, which was not integrated. Uh, there was a brand-new school that was designated for black students that was not integrated. They picked the oldest school, the school that had mainly working-class whites, and that's the one that was chosen to be integrated. And on top of that, Governor Orville Faubus uh, decided to use this moment to increase his power and position. Um, and and Faubus is a really interesting character because he was attacked as hillbilly stock. Um, but he was more than willing to use the threat of white thuggery as a way to stand up to President Dwight D. Eisenhower and to refuse to support the court-ordered integration. And then what this moment, what, so it was the most important domestic stor- story uh, in 1957. There were hundreds of reporters, international reporters, television coverage, And what we see is that not only northern reporters, but southern reporters began to highlight the idea that the people protesting integration were called rednecks. And they pulled out a whole host of really negative slurs to attack them. So that by 1959, the Times Literary Supplement argued that it was the ugly faces, and that's a quote, of rednecks, crackers, tar heels, and other poor white trash that would be forever remembered from Central High. So, yes, from the moment it began, Faubus exploited the threat that there was going to be racial warfare. Uh, And we know that that famous photograph that I have, there were actually three different photographs that were taken that same day. And they all highlight this tension between uh, the, you know, very sober and uh, proper black girl as she is being taunted by what would become the image of white trash, a woman who's wearing a dress that's too tight, who has an ugly face, and who is yelling taunts. 
Um, and and this is it's a really important mo- moment because it crystallizes this idea that the you know the tension there is focused on poor whites versus the chance of blacks to have a fair education uh, through civil rights legislation. Hey, we've been talking to Nancy Eisenberg, the author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, this is Jason Gay, sports writer at the Wall Street Journal, and I have a podcast called Free For All. And guess what? It's not just sports. We'll also talk about some real estate, some music, some culture, some fashion. I could talk about fashion. It's the Free For All. Become a subscriber on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, WSJ Speakeasy. Your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hey, this is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. I'm talking to Nancy Eisenberg. She's the author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. And this is not just a social history. It's also a pop cultural history. And I found it fascinating what you had to say about TV shows like The Honeymooners, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Farmer's Daughter, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, and what they had to say about depicting poorer whites on television. Can you tell me a bit about what all those shows really have in common and what they did to sort of create the image people have of poor whites? Yeah, I think we forget that, you know, we want to romanticize television in the past, but these shows clearly exploited the the kind of negative images, the, the idea of, of the ignorant hillbilly. Uh, and Beverly Hillbillies, I mean, this was something that was debated in the newspapers. Uh, one journalist wrote at the time um, that, and this was in response, this is another part of our history, we forget that there were large numbers of people from Appalachia who were moving into northern cities, who were being attacked the same way that uh, African Americans were being attacked in, in cities as being poor, unruly, dangerous, having too many children. So one journalist writes, well, you know, you may be laughing at Beverly Hillbillies, but what would happen if the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, as if a real Hillbillies moved into your town but didn't have all that wealth? And then another journalist at the time remarked that, that TV, and we know this in comedy, really served as a substitute we're talking about class anxieties, because what they really represented is the idea that the promise of social mobility did not apply equally to everyone. And it tapped into this long-standing critique that people who live in rural societies are backward, and that they never can really assimilate into normal American society. You also write about this interesting connection between President Lyndon Johnson and Elvis Presley. People always connect Elvis Presley to Nixon, but you think he has a more interesting class connection with President Johnson. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think what, was, what is important about that is that we forget that Lyndon Johnson was very much seen as a country boy, as a rube. And... You know, his popularity in part had to do with, you know, a grieving nation after the death of President Kennedy. But even his speechwriters were warned for, that he had to 
control his drawl, to not use alliteration, to not use the style of Southern public oratory as a way to convince people to trust him. And I think that where he's similar to Elvis is that what we forget about Elvis is that he is really the first pop cultural icon who could claim to be hip and cool. I mean, as scholars have shown, he borrowed from you know, African-American music styles. Uh, but he also was at the same time could be seen as hip and cool, but, you know, a country boy. And that somehow the whole toxic association with the rural, poor rural South somehow had, he's, he had sort of temporarily escaped that identity. And that's why he's so interesting. I mean, Elvis continues to be called a hillbilly, um, even though he... His family grew up as, you know, poor, southern, uh, poor Southerners from Mississippi. Uh, but he, he really kind of raises this interesting issue that emerges in the 1950s about how do we think about social mobility? Who are we going to accept? Uh, but as you can guess, he, he was, at the same time he was embraced, particularly by the young, um, you have other people in the media who are attacking both Elvis and LBJ as still somehow not of the right pedigree. Elvis was attacked because he was going to increase delinquency, that his you know, wild dancing was dangerous. Okay. LBJ was also attacked by the Goldwater campaign for being the, you know, an improper kind of father figure, the idea that he would present the wrong kind of role model for the rest of the country. So even though there's this moment where people embrace them, they never quite escape the taint of uh, being country boys or being associated with the, the, the notion of white trash. Okay, we're talking to Nancy Eisenberg, who's the author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America, but you're also the author of Fallen Father, the Life of Aaron Burr. Oh, yeah, of it's course, Fallen Founder, sorry. Uh, yeah, a, a Fallen Founder, the Life of... Uh, you're also the author of Fallen founder, The Life of Aaron Burr. And of course, Aaron Burr was the man that killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And of course, Alexander Hamilton is the inspiration for a new musical on Broadway that just uh, scored huge um, numbers on the, on the Tony Awards, won a lot of awards. Now, my question to you is, um, do you think that Aaron Burr has gotten his due? I mean, as someone who's written a, a book about him, uh, did you see the musical yet? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on it. Well, I've written some op-eds about the musical. My, my major critique is that there's a whole myth about Aaron Burr. What we forget is that there's been more fiction written about Aaron Burr than history. And the problem with the musical is it's fine to see it as entertainment. It's fine to sing along to the lyrics, but it's not history. <laughs> there are endless numbers of historical errors in the musical because you really can't be accurate uh, when you're doing a musical. The point is, is to tap into people's emotions. It's not to be reasonable and objective. Um, and there are, you know, the, the construction of Aaron Burr's identity in the musical um, builds on this older critique that somehow he's a flip-flopper, that he didn't really believe in anything. And in fact, my book proves just the opposite. <laughs> he was an ardent Jeffersonian Democrat. It wasn't an accident that he was selected to be Jefferson's vice president. Um, and the other 
sad point about the musical is that it makes Alexander Hamilton into this kind of superhero, which he was not. He was also a flawed individual. But that's what you get when you, you know, are talking about a Broadway musical. It's no different from 1776, which also was a major hit. But nobody today would think that 1776, the campy musical, was historically accurate. So that's really been my critique of the musical, Hamilton. So we're talking to Nancy Eisenberg, author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. And, of course, one thing that's happening on the political scene today is the rise of Donald Trump. He is the GOP's presumptive nominee. And a lot of political observers out there talk about the kind of support he has um, among poor whites. Uh, What do you think, what's your analysis of what's going on with the rise of Donald Trump with the GOP right now and how it connects to class in America? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. And I've also sort of done some interviews about this. One of the things that when, when Donald Trump hit the scene, um, essentially there were many journalists who were saying that most of his supporters were people who possess a high school degree or less. They mostly live in the South. They were seeing a correlation between Trump supporters and mobile home residents. Uh, and they also saw Trump as being, you know, they called him the revenge of the lower classes. Um, now, part of what's going on here is that if you think about the visual images of the rallies, uh, the, the people who were in attendance were principally being seen as white men. They were wearing their bubble caps or their trucker's caps. So that immediately meant that, you know, Trump supporters were drawing on white trash. Uh, but other journalists have said that if you actually look at who votes for Trump, they come from a higher class than either Hillary's, in terms of wealth, income, than Hillary or Bernie supporters. But I think the anger, I think that when people look at Trump supporters, um, one of the reasons that they do associate him with white trash is because he's, he's drawing on this, this really powerful tradition of Southern uh, populism, uh, and and the the figure who best comes to mind who I talk about in my book is James Vardaman of Mississippi. He was very much similar to Trump because he was compared to a carnival barker. Uh, he was someone who used racist attacks as a way to incite uh, poor white male voters who would come to his rallies. And I think it's that toxic mixture of racism and then also the fact that if you look at the people, the interviews with people who support Trump, what they always say they like about him is that he's honest, his raw honesty. And that's the other way he's tapping into this kind of southern populism. Because what Vardaman said, he said that democracy should be as dirty as the people. (laughs) So this idea that you just say anything that you think, no matter how nasty, you don't pretend to be polite. You don't pretend to, you know, cover up your real feelings. You just let it all hang out. And this also is part of our past, part of our history, and the way we look at the people who have been successful in playing this role of the Southern populist demagogue. Um, so those are really some of the things that are being attached to Trump. Um, but, you know, now we know that the Republican Party is willing to go along with him. And, yes, occasionally they criticize him when he says something obnoxious. But it's, I think it's, it's, 
it's a, just another way to sort of what, what I see as part of the problem is to see that Trump's racism isn't just embodied in poor whites. <laughs> it's a kind of racism that, you know, elite whites can also ignore. Because for the Republicans, if they want to win, they're willing to support Donald Trump. Well, the book is White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. Uh, The author is Nancy Eisenberg. Nancy, thanks a lot for talking to The Wall Street Journal. Well, thank you for this interview. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.